This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. If you are nervous about the technical capabilities or capacity uh, for manufacturing, you probably at that point you do need to take them deep and get control of your destiny. Welcome to the Biotech Pulse, our Forbian podcast. Forbian is a leading life sciences venture capital firm founded in the Netherlands, helping companies bridge research and development through our team's expertise in drug development and company building. For over 15 years, we've invested in over 100 companies, backing exciting therapies that we believe have the potential to impact the future of medicine. The Biotech Pulse is a forum where we speak about all things biotech with diverse stakeholders in the life sciences industry. Hello. My name is Rogier Roosinkel, and I'm a general partner at Forbion. My role at Forbion is to source, evaluate, and manage investment opportunities with a special emphasis on oncology. Our first podcast is a conversation with a biotech entrepreneur back. To hear directly from him about challenges faced and the smart solutions he's come up with as he's grown his business. Today, it's a real pleasure for me to introduce our first guest on the Biotech Pulse, Philip Ashley Spark. Philip is the CEO of Repimmune a Nasdaq-listed Forbian portfolio company working at the cutting edge of cancer immunotherapies. Before starting Revolume, Philip was president of the US at Unicure, as well as CEO of Biofax. Philip is here with us today to talk about the manufacturing of complex biologics and to shed some light on his approach to manufacturing. Philip, thanks for being on our podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me, Roger. I'm delighted to be here. Hey, Philip, for those of us that do not know, tell us a little bit about Revolume and what you're trying to achieve. Uh, Reptimmune is a public listed company. Uh, it is the leader in oncolytic immunotherapy. Uh, oncolytic immunotherapy is the use of viruses that selectively replicate in and kill tumor cells, but do not replicate in uh, in healthy tissue. The viruses are injected into tumor deposits and end up uh, engendering a full systemic uh, immune response, which hopefully also vaccinate the patients against relapse. Thanks, Philip, for that uh, overview. So 2023 and 2024 are promised to be exciting years for, for Repnion. Uh, we'll, stay, uh, we'll stay tuned. Um, so for now, maybe let's focus on uh, the topic of, of manufacturing, the topic of our podcast. Um, so, Philip, all biotechs that are manufacturing complex biologics at, at some point in their lifetime face the decision to either work with a CDMO or to set up manufacturing capabilities in-house or a mixture of both. Um, obviously, you have come through this uh, multiple times. So, can you tell us about some of the considerations that come into play with with making this decision? Yeah, there's a, there's a central premise that underpins this whole conversation, Roger, which is that the material you use in your pivotal study, study upon which you will base uh, an approval, and the process used to produce that material has to all intents and purposes be the same that is used for launch. That's kind of intuitive. You're, you're testing products to show what its efficacy and safety profile is, and that has to be reproducible uh, when the product is prescribed uh, around the around the world um, to patients. So, if you're if you're developing a relatively simple molecule, they may well be contract manufacturers that have the capacity not only to bring your product through clinical trials, but actually to launch on a on a global scale. But if, uh, if a company is developing a, a more complex biologic, you may not have uh, a contract manufacturers 
that actually can produce uh, at scale to meet worldwide uh, demand. And then you're going to have to look to bring manufacturing uh, in-house, at least for launch. You could use the contract manufacturer all the way through the clinical development um, process. But the conundrum, the conundrum is, is it takes uh, two years lead time to bring manufacturing in-house. So you're going to have to make that decision ahead of knowing whether your drug is going to be successful in a, in a, in a pivotal study. So that really is the, uh, is the conundrum. Um, this is the approach of actually taking a, a rep commune. Uh, we have built out a facility, a lot of used contract material uh, for all of our clinical studies. But what we've done is show comparability from the material that we've used in the pivotal study to what we plan uh, to, to the material being produced in our in-house facility, which we will use um, um, for launch. So we didn't feel that we could rely on contract manufacturers at Rep Commune uh, to meet worldwide demand. Hence, we have bought manufacturing in-house while using contract manufacturers for the uh, development process. Yeah, thanks, Philip. That is, that is super insightful. So it's clear that there is, uh, for every business, there is its own unique model, which uh, or hybrid model that you might wanna might wanna stick to. So say that you have decided at least partly to go with a with a CDMO. So what are some of the criteria that that you look at for selecting the right partner? So if you're working with complex biologics, and I work with uh, oncolytic viruses and uh, and gene therapy, then you know, first of all, you're going to look at the technical ability of the contract manufacturer. Have they got experiences working with uh, viral uh, vectors? Have they got the technical ability to scale up? Uh, you may have a, a, a process that kind of like works for a phase one study. In the old days in gene therapy, you used to use something called roller bottles, but that was very difficult to use that um, methodology when you're serving the worldwide market. Do they have the ability to upscale to something called hyperstacks, larger bioreactors, or even the state of the art at the moment, which are called bioreactors based on Icelis? Do they have filling capabilities? And also, over and above the technical side, capacity. I'm not so much talking about capacity, whether they can ever launch uh, launch a drug. I mean, in terms of your own timelines, can they produce multiple batches for you with redundancy. And what I mean by redundancy is, is that when you manufacture complex biologics, you have to assume failure. Batches are going to go wrong. And if you have employed a contract manufacturer whereby they've squeezed you in as their third, fourth most important client and your batch goes down and you say, oh, I need to run another one. So we're all well and good, but I can't fit you in until next year. You've got a real problem. I mean, obviously biotech companies are cash burning companies until they become profitable. You can't just sit on the sidelines for, for, for one year. So you have to be very carefully about whether the uh, the uh, manufacturer is not too busy and has the time for you, and you can establish a very important relationship. And I think in some way, your business has to be important to that contract manufacturer in uh, in uh, in that regard as well. Yeah, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense, uh, Philip. So it is in the end uh, a, a a puzzle that you need to solve. Um, so for for biotechs uh, as well as Unicure and Replimune. Uh, it was decided to at least do some of the manufacturing in-house, and, and you were instrumental in, the, in in all of these processes. So, so can you tell us some of the the challenges you faced, and maybe some of the learnings that you had over over that time? 
Yes, I think they're actually very useful in illustrating the points I've uh, I've just made. So let's start with Biobex, uh, my first biotech uh, venture, which was also in the uh, oncolytic space. Uh, Biobex uh, ended up getting the first oncolytic approved by the FDA. So there we started with contract uh, manufacturers and we had delays. The first thing I did when I moved Biobex across the Atlantic to the United States was to establish in-house manufacturing. We actually established in-house manufacturing to uh, produce material even for our pivotal study so that by the time that uh, we got that result, we were using the same process and the same facilities we were going to use for launch. So roll forward to Unicure, uh, where I was uh, appointed to um, really uh, move the center of gravity of Unicure from Europe to the United States. And again, the first thing I did uh, because of these experiences was establish um, um, manufacturing. Uh, in uh, in Lexington, which I think was the largest gene therapy manufacturing uh, facility uh, at the time. Back at the time, this is different now, gene therapy was only coming into vogue. Uh, this is going back um, over 10 years ago, and there was limited viral vector manufacturing expertise. So that really had the decision to bring, bring the um, process in-house ahead of running pivotal studies again, such that the process was worked out and we had the facility we weren't going to have to change facility uh, ahead of launch. And, and uh, looking in the rearview mirror, that all worked out very well. The need hemophilia B product from Unicure it is now a, uh, a marketed a marketed drug. And then Replimune, things are getting better by the time we um, founded Replimune in terms of there were now more contract manufacturers with real experience of viral vectors. Gene therapy was starting to get into vogue. So here we actually took a more of a middle approach. We've used a contract manufacturer all the way through clinical development, uh, through pivotal studies, uh, but we're going to use our own manufacturing facility for, for launch. But because we used contract material for our pivotal study, then we have had to show the process is identical comparability to the material being released from our in-house facility, uh, we have now done that. We've uh, cleared that with the uh, with the FDA, and that now, as I mentioned in the beginning, we're we're building uh, we're building inventory. So, in each of these examples, I did things slightly slightly differently. Yeah, that that is very exciting to hear, actually, Philip. All your your stories actually indeed outlining slightly specific or slightly different ways of of getting to the same same result. So. When we talk about advanced therapies, I, I often hear you say the process is the product. Can you elaborate a little bit on that or what you mean? Absolutely. So let, let's use the example of uh, oncolytic immunotherapy, which essentially is viruses that selectively replicate and kill tumor cells. So the product is a virus. Our, our virus is, is the herpes virus. But what I mean by the process is the product is how you grow that virus up becomes integral to what the product essentially is. So if you think about the manufacturing process for uh, an oncolytic virus, it has to be um, grown in, in a growth medium. Viruses can't just grow by themselves. Uh, they grow. We, we grow them in, in, in vera cells. So the vera cells in some way become part of the products. The virus stop and replicate exponentially within the vera cells, or burst them open, then they'll need to be harvested off. So as you see with something that is essentially a live product, then the way you manufacture it becomes integral to the product. Hence, that any changes in the process are essentially changing the product. Coming right back to the central premise from the beginning, which is why it's essential to have, to all intents and purposes, an identical process you're using in your late-stage clinical trials and you are for launch. The agency is going to insist on that, or otherwise it's going to determine that your product has changed because the process has changed. 
Yeah, no, and that makes a lot of sense. And and obviously also that rigidity is what any pharma party, if you want to collaborate or, or at some point be acquired, obviously will uh, uh, look into very carefully. Yeah, maybe switching slightly to the topic of scaling things, because obviously a biotech and its infancy doesn't know whether its product actually will reach the market and spending a lot of money uh, initially, immediately on, on sort of the right process and, and, and being ready for for market might turn out to not be needed, uh, obviously, if you hit, hit a, a downturn. So how do you how do you sort of balance that between sort of capital expenditure at the beginning, whereas also being able to to scale that such that you can actually handle the the market? And you gave us already the example with with Rapimune, uh, how are you doing that now? But maybe you could also see uh, is there a sort of a general premise here? Um, I can answer that in two ways. One is a technical point, and one is a, a physical capacity point in terms of showing that you can scale. Uh, in terms of the, uh, the technical point, is I think regardless of whether or not you're going to have a physical footprint yourself from early on in the development cycle, it's essential as a company, even if you're not going to have a footprint, you develop very strong process development and analytical development capabilities. So let, let's break down what I mean by that. Uh, essentially, if you're starting not bringing in manufacturing in-house and using a contract manufacturer, you know you're going to have to scale, you're going to have to work with your contract partner and uh, you're going to have to get to the right scale at some point in the future. You can't rely on the contract manufacturer to do that. Um, there may be some clever people there one year, they may have left the second year. It's important you have control over your own destiny. So you need to build your own process development department that is working on scalability. Process development essentially is looking at increasing yields so that when you do get into that final step, that pivotal study, you have got a reproducible process that can be brought through to, to, to launch. And ditto with analytical development. The way you actually uh, prove that your product is the same is in a suite of studies, release studies uh, or release assays that basically show that your product does what it says on the tin, i.e. efficacious and safety. And when you run comparability between an earlier stage process and a more scalable process, then essentially those assays have to come up with the same results, showing that the process you use early in the development course and the process you use for launch is one and the same thing because those assays are all coming up with a consistent set of results. That's also very important, even if you're not building your own manufacturing footprint from the get-go, you have your analytical development capabilities uh, in-house in, in working on that so that you can direct the contract manufacturer. And if the contract manufacturer uh, has turnover or the rest of it all lets you down, you don't have to go back to the drawing board. You have that skill set in-house for when you're actually ready to start building your own, own physical footprint. And then in terms of scaling, in terms of capacity, I think it's always good to have a plan for the future. So you know, at Repimune, we have a, we have a site uh, where we uh, constructed the site and we did make sure we had a fallow area so that if we need additional capacity for everything goes incredibly right, we need to basically produce products beyond our need indications, and we can fit that out without having to scrabble around and find a find a uh, a second a second site. Very interesting, uh, Philip. Yeah, maybe slightly switching gears. Um, if you if you find yourself in such a position and you can uh, you have the the option to choose your VC partner. Is there anything that comes to mind that you find critically important besides obviously deep pockets? So when it came to um, selection for, for Repimune and the, the seed financing, we looked to Forbian and, and one other party, Amiga, who also invested in uh, 
in in Biomix. And really, it was the understanding that we had between management and 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 Forbian that this is a potentially long game. Uh, success isn't linear. Uh, had experience with Forbian in both uh, Unicure and and Biomix in uh, backing us through the the inevitable uh, ups and downs. I had a lot of respect for the Forbian team. In as much as I felt that they uh, gone into technical areas where others have feared to tread, uh, like oncolytic immunotherapy, like gene therapy, before everyone else was on the bandwagon, and actually made it work. And uh, so it's very comfortable um, working with Forbian again, um, knowing that they understood some of these more complex issues, in, including manufacturing, and would support management in uh, making the right uh, judgment calls in terms of when to invest in in capex. And uh, if we did you know, hit any um, any uh, bumps on the road, would uh, would be supportive um, through them. I think what's also important uh, is, is is brand name and and a critical mass of size. Um, you do need a brand name that is going to attract other investors. You build out syndicates and look credible in uh, in a in a in an IPO scenario. So I think the relationship side of things between your investors. As you look to grow syndicates for subsequent rounds, is also uh, very important. I mean, it is it is remarkable that really Forbian has been at the dawn of uh, not just oncolytic immunotherapy, but also the dawn of uh, of uh, gene gene therapy. I actually have often often wondered uh, what it is about Forbian that they uh, have the mindset to to actually go where others uh, fear to tread. So maybe I could uh, throw that question back to you, Roger. Thanks, uh, Philip. It's a uh, it's a great question, actually, and. Uh, I think it's it's a couple of things. So, first of all, I think we are mostly scientists uh, at Forbion, um, and uh, where we go where the data leads us. So, in that sense, if there is strong disease biology, linearity, understanding of modes of actions, we're not afraid to sort of take risks on either the disease side or modality side. And I think it's also has been paying off for us in, in uh, over the years. I think it's been uh, uh, like you like you mentioned, we were indeed early believers in oncolytic viruses, which I think are now becoming more and more uh, a, an established modality. Uh, gene therapy, obviously, uh, we were both in Bluebird and in uh, and in uh, Unicure. Uh, I think driving the the two first approved processes, uh, uh, the products in in this uh, in in this region. So it's it's something that we have um, uh, that we are, we're fine to follow the data wherever that leads us. I think the other point is 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 people, um, and that that does on two levels. So first of all, I think our people in house. I think we have a lot of expertise in certain areas where others might not. Uh, I'm thinking in this case of of Sander van Deventer. Uh, sort of founded uh, Unicure, uh, then also came back as, as being the CSO while, while it was listed. He, he was one of the first to really sort of pioneer gene therapy in, in many ways. Secondly, obviously, it's about the people you work with. And I think it's a, a lot of about can people execute on, on in those uncharted territory. territory. So uh, I think obviously with you, we have a, a strong link and a, and a good connection. And I think that is there that we trust also that you are able to solve some of the puzzles that are in the unknown, uh, right? M- mindful that this might take uh, a little bit more time than we anticipated, mindful that there will be unknown obstacles that we need to overcome. But if we believe in management that and the data uh, together, I think that is uh, why we are uh, not afraid to go in uncharted territories, like you said. Yeah, very good. I, I think it really shows you courage of, of, of your convictions as well, because... Uh... 
sitting here today, gene therapy has been established uh, to a degree on colic, um, uh, immunotherapy, but the, we go back 15, 20 years, the time when we're starting to, uh, to work together and develop these uh, products, they were wildly unfashionable. So I think it really, the, the other point is having, having the courage, your convictions, and uh, it's been an honor to work with, uh, work with a, a group of like-minded individuals. Well, that's very much the same count for us, uh, Philip. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I'm, I'm very glad we're sitting here today. Philip, again, thank you very much for the for being on the podcast today. Yeah, no, no. Uh, pl- pl- pleasure to be here and share some insights, particularly in relation to uh, to CMC. Uh, you know, I think in in conclusion, it's really about controlling your your own uh, your own destiny, and you, you have to look forward and. Uh, if you are nervous about the technical capabilities or capacity uh, for manufacturing, you probably at that point you do need to take the leap and get control of your own destiny. At a minimum, establish uh, your own quality process development and analytical development groups, uh, and moreover, potentially look at uh, your own physical manufacturing footprint uh, as well. Yeah, very useful. Okay, it's been a pleasure. Um, And for our listeners, uh, I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Biotech Pulse. Please join us for our next episode, which lands in November, where we'll be focusing on mergers and acquisitions and how to set up yourself for success by being able to demonstrate market potential. Thanks for listening to the Biotech Pulse, a Forbian podcast. To subscribe and share or to find out more about the Biotech Pulse, visit our website, forbian.com.